I'm Katija Chandler. I'm a reader in the School of Social Work at the University of Yorkshire. And um, obviously, I'd like to thank you all for inviting me to speak here. And um, my talk today is going to cover some key areas. Um, I know primarily you might be interested in higher education, but this, this offers a broader understanding of forced marriage. Um, and it pays particular attention to roots into and out of forced marriage. It talks a little bit about policy and professional engagement with the issue and particularly the contradictory ways <clears throat> in which forced marriage is perceived in different policy areas which can have implications for exiting forced marriage. And lastly, I'll be touching a little bit on the impact um, of forced marriage on victims. So that's what the presentation covers. So um, it's useful to start, I think, with reiterating that forced marriage is an abuse of human rights. And you can see from these um, declarations um, how, how it's framed. <clears throat> and um, what is important, I think, about what's on the slide is, is the notion of consent. Um, and so it implies a full and free consent. But um, you'll see, as I, through the presentation, that consent is actually quite a slippery and difficult concept. And you'll see this particularly through some of the survivor accounts that I'll, I'll be um, talking about um, in the presentation. Um, as with any field of study, obviously it's quite important to start with what is, what is forced marriage, because definitional issues are central um, to any topic of study. And forced marriage is actually more difficult to define than it might appear. The Home Office definition is quite important, it's quite helpful, um, so they say it's where one or both parties are coerced into a marriage against their will and under duress. So um, again, the lack of consent is central um, to, to the definition, as in this case is duress. And so duress includes emotional, physical, financial and other forms of violence. Um, forced marriage is often conceptualised and positioned, particularly in policy arenas, as distinct um, um, from arranged marriage. So there's a distinction between arranged and forced marriage. And again, I want to um, trouble these distinctions. Um, and um, the other issue is that forced marriage is often positioned as an issue of honour-based violence. And again, that's something else I want to be troubling. Um, because um, the survivors' accounts illustrate that it's far more complex than understanding it purely as a cultural issue. And there have been several government initiatives to prevent forced marriage, and the reason that's important is because their responses um, show some underlying assumptions about the nature of forced marriage, which we'll touch upon briefly. So, um, as I said, there's a distinction between forced and arranged marriages. In arranged marriage, the central premise <coughs> is that family introduce <coughs> young people to each other, and then the young people are free to decide um, whether that's the right person for them or not. And um, the kind of criteria that are used in selection are language, religion, job, siblings, whether the siblings are married, hobbies, and so on. Um, and uh, the parents and uh, 
family members of the young people compile sort of CV, which currently in community settings are known as biodata. And um, then they, this information might be sent to a marriage broker within the community or just mentioned within communities that, oh, I'm looking for a husband-wife, you know, for, for my son or daughter. Now, I think this, this approach to marriage, if you look at it through Western eyes, it's often presented as devoid of romantic love um, and a rather reductionist approach to finding a life partner. So no racing pulses or eyes locked across a busy room, you know, none of that. Um, but I think what's interesting um, is that although it's presented as such, in reality um, there are quite a lot of overlaps between romantic love and arranged marriage. Um, in the sense that, um, if you look at the last bullet point, the growing significance of dating websites, this is this is happens in Euro-American context where people are looking for life partners on dating websites. It also happens in South Asian contexts, and particularly in India, there's a website called Shadi.com. Shadi means marriage, um, so it makes it clear that you're looking for a marriage partner. And I had a look at some of the accounts on there, and while many of them, you know. I mean, the process is the same, this reductionist process of what criteria you're looking for. So whether it's match.com or whether it's shadi.com, you're still doing the same filtering process of trying to find the right per person. And you might be using some of the same kind of criteria. So already we're beginning to see a blurring of the lines between romantic love and this kind of criteria-based um, love. Um, but what I also noticed that in, on Shadi.com, obviously they're only going to report successful stories, but um, the courtship periods are really quite condensed. They're transnational in, in nature, so there were people in Canada meeting people in, um, in the UK, people in India meeting people elsewhere in the world and so on. Um, and um, so what happens is that when you look at the accounts, they are kind of imbued with notions of romantic love on shadi.com. Marriages are contracted quite quickly. So one could argue that actually it's in the first flush of infatuation or love or whatever that these marriages are contracted. In contrast to Euro-American practices where cohabitation is more usual and marriage is only contracted if, for example, the couple decide to have a child or something. So the practical considerations feature more in Euro-American uh, context. I'm only saying this to begin to blur some of these lines which are kind of, you know, present these things as uh, dis um, discrete um, entities. But obviously, <clears throat> the central thing in arranged marriage is, is the consent of young people. And before the term forced marriage came about, everything was called arranged, so there wasn't kind of this distinction. So I'm not saying that it's not useful to have the distinction, but also to be aware of the kind of uh, blurred lines between them. Similarly, I talked about, you know, just talked about the kind of blurring between romantic love and arranged marriage. There's also a slipperiness, if you like, between arranged marriage and forced marriage especially when arranged marriage happens at the level of social expectation. So um, this survivor says, I had the choice to say, mm, I wasn't forced into saying yes, 
I think my mum, my parents didn't give me enough time, or didn't. They didn't. Even though I was about 14, 15, that's no age to ask a girl, does she want to get engaged to someone? So you can see how there wasn't kind of physical violence, there wasn't any of the drama that we often hear about, but there is this kind of subtle emotional pressure where she didn't actually feel that she could say no. Um, so I think that's important. And um, on the basis of this, some authors have suggested a, a continuum approach um, is better than the distinct categories of arranged and forced marriage. Although to date, this continuum largely refers to arranged and forced with no space for romantic love. And I think the continuum probably could do with a bit of expansion. Okay, so let's look at some of the empirical studies um, about forced marriage um, in the UK. Um, there's been quite a little small flurry of activity on, on the forced marriage research front and um, here are some of the key studies and of course Renata will be discussing hers later. Um, and there is also a study that's not on there which is about forced marriage and learning disability which I will talk about in a little while. I'm drawing largely on the Hester et al. study, which was conducted in three areas of the UK, Tower Hamlets in London, Birmingham and Manchester. Um, and um, the, the idea was, um, it was funded by the Border Agency and it was about looking at whether the um, age of sponsorship and spousal visa should be increased from 18 to 21. Um, so that was what that study was about. But I'm also drawing on my other studies in relation to violence against women, particularly in minoritised communities and obviously on the literature as well. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do with these studies is, is highlight some of the key themes and then unpick them a little bit more. So I'll be doing that. But before, before that, I just want to say something about the quantitative data on forced marriage. Now, Given that there is a strong preference for quantitative data in policy circles and also in the hierarchy of evidence, it's worth pointing out, I think, some of the basic difficulties. Forced marriage is difficult to measure. So when does something count as an incident of forced marriage? In the study, in the Hester et al. study, when we interviewed, for example, the Metropolitan Police, they said, well, actually, we don't know when to log it as a forced marriage. Should we log it, for example, when a young person phones up and says, nothing's happened, but I'm really concerned that something's going to happen? How can we log it as a forced marriage because nothing's happened? Should we log it when it's something coercive has happened? Or should we log it after the marriage has been contracted? So I think... You know, this is, this is quite an important issue because, um, you know, to note, I suppose, is the methodological gap between the official fairly concrete definition um, of forced marriage, both nationally and internationally, um, and the more fluid realities of practice, as the example I've given illustrates. And technically, it could be argued that if one were keeping to the uh, definitions given uh, nationally and internationally, then one would only count marriages that had already been contracted. <clears throat> but what's more common in forced marriage research studies and also in practice is a more inclusive definition, so one that includes pre- and post-marriage. Uh, 
Okay, so those are some of the limitations of the quantitative data that is available, but let's look at what it says. Um, the information we have is largely about um, <coughs> South Asian communities, and we should bear in mind, of course, that this is the largest minority grouping in the UK, with a long history of settlement, and with quite a strong and vociferous South Asian feminist organisation within it. And some of these organisations have been campaigning against forced marriage for at least 25 years. So there is already a kind of recognition of this as an issue um, within those communities. Um, and um, all these factors might help to explain why most of the information is largely available about those communities. Um, Kazmiski et al. study, the Natsang study, um, said that there were between five and 8,000 cases of forced marriage in 2008. Um, the forced marriage unit also produces data. Um, they focus largely on transnational work, but they also do work within the UK. And the bottom bullet point gives you the figures um, of the number of cases they dealt with in those various years. Um, to me, of particular interest is that approximately 20% are male victims. So I'm currently conducting a small study looking at male victims' experiences of forced marriage. Um, and of particular note, particularly to university sector, might be that 33% um, were aged between 18 and 21. So that's quite a significant number. So looking at what the key themes are in the research, from what I've already said, it's clear that um, there's a lack of adequate recording of forced marriage, in part because of the definitional issues. So in the Hester et al. study, one, one of the things we, we had hoped to do was to look at organisations' databases to try and establish what, what the scale of the problem was. But this was actually really difficult because of the issues I've talked about. Um, this was also um, stated in the Natsen study in 2009 um, in terms of what counts as a case. Uh, majority of victims are young South Asian women, but forced marriage does occur in a range of communities, and uh, we'll talk about which communities in a second. Um, I think there are differences in the conceptualization of forced marriage. Is it purely cultural, as Brandon and Hafiz state, um, or is it part of the wider notion of gender-based violence? Um, I, think, I think that's really important to, to kind of get right, because how we respond um, to forced marriage will depend on how we understand it. And the final issue is something around lack of professional knowledge, lack of recognition, lack of intervention, and also the fear of intervention um, in forced marriage um, cases. So what I'm going to do is unpick these four themes a little bit more, and also um, drawing on my other research and um, I should state here now that I'm a qualitative researcher, so most of the methods that I've used in these studies are semi-structured interviews and focus groups, either with service providers or with survivors uh, uh, of forced marriage and other forms of uh, violence. 
So the things that um, you can see on the slide have emerged from these studies and I'll be discussing some of these in greater detail. And I suppose where I want to start is if we try to consider um, violence against women, including forced marriage, from the perspective of the woman experiencing violence, I guess the first challenge is for victims to feel okay about approaching agencies for help. And here I wanted to draw attention to how the wider political landscape shapes this process. So in 2002, um, our study showed that um, the number of um, Muslim callers to the domestic violence helpline in Manchester fell post 9-11. And in that same study, uh, some Irish women who were looking back on their experiences um, of violence reported the difficulty of approaching agencies for help during the troubles. And similarly, in a later study, this Hester et al. study on forced marriage, this survivor reported the following. So what she says is, because that majority community over there doesn't know me, doesn't want me, doesn't trust me, and so particularly if you're from a Muslim background, it's like, it's like your choices have suddenly, over the last couple of years, been diminished as a Muslim woman, diminished over time, diminished with the politics, and so the community feels like it's under siege and women are part of that community and therefore they feel as though they are under siege and therefore they're not going to go and take the risks and have that trusting relationship with the mainstream. So I think this, this highlights the manner in which the political context um, shapes decisions about whether or not to approach anyone um, for help. Um, so the construction, in this case, the construction and repetition of discourses of Muslims as terrorists is highly problematic. Because I think what this excerpt reminds us is um, every time a community is demonised, you know, whether it's Muslim people, whether it's Irish people, whether it's the Roma communities, it is the women in these communities who are experiencing violence, whose lives are made doubly difficult. Okay, well, let us assume that despite this context, the woman does approach somebody for help. Tutor, social worker, police, whoever. Well, then she might be met with race anxiety. So, race anxiety refers to individual and collective, um, that's institutional and state level anxiety, about how to intervene to my, in relation to minoritized people, particularly in relation to abuse and other sensitive topics. Um, the anxiety is generated through um, a fear and a shame of being labeled racist or culturally insensitive. Um, and it's this anxiety that appears to override sound decision-making and assessment about how to intervene. As participant in one of our studies said, he didn't want to be called a colonial bastard. Um, <clears throat> so, and more than this, of course, in the UK, there has been a lot of training to help practitioners to be culturally sensitive. And, you know, these are all laudable aims, but I think that it's also had some unintended consequences of feeding into race anxiety and increasing practitioners' fears of challenging violence within minoritized communities. Now, 
this is a long time ago, 2001, but this was also found more recently in 2011 on the topic of forced marriages. And I think what I'm interested in is how in these processes, issues of culture are privileged over gender. And this is strengthened by conservative community leaders who demand a sort of um, cultural autonomy or cultural privacy. So the combination and interaction of these processes work to make protecting minoritized women from violence extremely difficult. I'll just give you a small example from one of the studies that uh, I've been involved in. So um, I'm going to call um, um, this participant Nadia. And um, she was living in a violent relationship. <clears throat> she had two children. She was pregnant for a third time. She didn't want to go through with this third pregnancy because she had health complications that made the pregnancy difficult to carry and also because she was living in an abusive relationship and didn't want a third child within that context. Um, she was a Muslim woman. She managed to get herself to the GP. She talked about having an abortion. And obviously, this was in, she wanted it to be completely confidential um, from her husband. Uh, managed to organize all this. On the day of the abortion, her husband managed to find out marched to the hospital with her and said she's demented you cannot do this this is against our religion it's against our culture and you just cannot do this if she was saying she wouldn't be asking for an abortion and what do you think the professionals did they listened to him so that you know because they were so afraid you know that they might be uh, you know might be called racist or culturally insensitive. So um, I think it's worth remembering that feminists in general have had to struggle to get violence in the family recognized as a matter for public policy. Well, feminists in minoritized communities have been campaigning to remove the calls um, to culture and religion, which make the lives of minoritized women experiencing violence so very difficult, as the different agencies they may turn to for help may refuse to help them because violence against women, including forced marriage, is constructed as part of their culture. So, we end up with a situation where violence against women in minoritized communities comes to be seen as cultural. But violence against women in majority communities is not seen as cultural. And I think that this is quite problematic. So if we take the example of date rape in Euro-American context and forced marriage in minority communities, we see quite a difference in the way that these two topics are treated. So we never come to understand date rape as being a cultural phenomenon. It's always presented as an aberrant behavior of particular individuals. Whereas forced marriage in minority communities is nearly always presented as a cultural issue. And I think the power relations that are involved in such naming processes are crucially important. And of course, the information that we have shows that violence against women happens in all communities. And I think this does challenge the notion of cultural specificity and of cultural others. Um, yeah. I particularly like um, the work of Shireen Razak. I don't know if 
um, others are familiar with it. But um, the reason I like her work is because she kind of um, takes some of the issues I've talked about, say for example, the construction of date rape and forced marriage, and um, troubles those categories. So um, Razak argues that the cultural superiority which is inherent in some forms of Western feminism is problematic. And she highlights in particular the work of Wiccan, who's a Scandinavian um, feminist, as an example of this. Um, Razak critiques Wiccan's work on the following three grounds. Firstly, when Wiccan implies that um, that Westerners have values which are liberal, democratic, egalitarian, whilst particularly Muslims have cultures inevitably constructed as oppressive and patriarchal. And I think what this does is create a dichotomy between individual autonomy and freedom versus the oppressive forces of culture, which are seen to be an inherent part of the other. Um, secondly, um, Razak argues that the over-determining way in which culture is used um, by Khan obscures the structural um, relationships based on race and class and neglects the historical basis of power relationships often based on colonization between majority and minority communities in European contexts. And lastly, um, Razak points out that implicit in Wiccan's work is the self-image of the West as outside of culture, um, privileging instead personal autonomy. And in turn, this is seen as a more civilized way of living and a way of living that barbaric ovens need to be instructed in. So I think this is quite a useful critique and links quite well with what I was saying earlier about date rape and forced marriage. So let's move on to look at which communities forced marriage um, occurs in. So um, in the Hester et al. study, part of what we've done was a mapping survey of organisations who supported uh, people who came to them with issues of forced marriage. Um, so um, what you can see on the slide is that forced marriage, according to that study, yes, South Asian communities did feature the most highly, but also Somali communities, other African communities, Middle Eastern, um, Chinese and Latin American um, communities. So in fact, quite widespread. And the forced marriage unit itself in 2013 um, dealt with victims pertaining to 74 countries. And I think this illustrates the limitation of forced marriage as only a case of honour-based violence, because there must be a handful of countries who have honour-based violence if there are 74 that the forced marriage unit dealt with. And still looking at uh, communities where young people are at risk, I'd like to draw attention to um, this research by, uh, conducted by the Anne Craft and Judith Trust, um, which is specifically about young people with learning um, difficulties. Um, and the central issue here, again, is the issue of consent, because um, if you have a learning disability, your capacity to consent might be impacted. So, uh, and because consent is a central feature, we need to bear that in mind. 
Importantly, the motivation of parents can be quite benign because they might be thinking, well, when we die, who's going to look after our young son or daughter? And if they're married, then they'll be, you know, then they'll be looked after. But it is still an abuse of human rights. In terms of gender, it's roughly equal numbers of men and women, and there are some specific guidelines um, about how to, how to intervene in those types of situations. So going back to the um, Hester et al. study, um, I'm interested here, what we did was we looked at roots into forced marriage. Because I think looking at roots into forced marriage tells us more than if we just assume a culturalist frame or, or not. Let's look at what the women's accounts um, were like. So these were some of the key issues, the key roots um, that came up, and I'm going to talk about some of them um, in more detail. So the first issue is to do with poverty and financial issues. So some of the African participants that we interviewed discussed the intersection of poverty and bride wealth as a route into forced marriage. Do people know what bride wealth is? This is where the, the groom's family um, make a payment to the bride's family at the point of marriage. Is that Dowry is usually the other way around, where the girl's um, family make a payment to the groom's family. So um, what the participants are saying is that um, poverty is the major thing. If she, that's the prospective in-laws, gives money, the family won't ask for the young woman's consent. The money will buy rice for them. So we are talking about extreme poverty and the way in which the bride wealth will actually help to put food on the table. Because of money, they will send their kids off for marriage. So here I just want to, you know, I said we needed to trouble the notion of consent. Again, in this situation, a woman in this situation, if she has the means whereby she can feed the rest of her siblings and her parents in order to get married, can you see how consent is, is so, so compromised and restricted um, by the situation that she's in? Also, I want to draw attention to poverty in Chinese contexts. Because of the one-child policy in China, there is a kind of imbalance between, and also the boy preference, um, there is an imbalance in, in uh, young men and young women of marriageable age. And in rural areas in particular, there is the issue of the sale of women um, for marriage. So again, it's how the kind of wider context can impact on notions of forced marriage that I think are really important. Okay, so um, still keeping with this, but kind of bringing in the issue of immigration as well, I want, you, I want to tell you the story of Maria, who is a woman from Mozambique, who told us of her childhood filled with violence. She was one of six children and her family did not have the resources to educate them all. Maria had wanted to pursue a college education, but was forced into marriage. And she also reported the custom of bride price, bride wealth, as a crucial factor here. And there was a lot of violence in her own relationship. And this is what she says. I was pregnant at the time and he drinks, so one day I asked him where he was. I was taking his shoes off. You have to take your shoes off, socks off, everything, sometimes soak his legs. 
And I asked him where he was and he didn't reply, so I asked him again. And the next thing, he hit at me on my face. I couldn't believe this. And again, the next one. I didn't say anything. He said, how dare you ask me? I didn't get married so you could ask me. You live under my roof. You have to obey my rules. I paid money for you and your father knows you are here and you were given to me. And I kept quiet. So I prepared the food, still crying, and he ate and went to bed. So her sense of being bought is really compounded by, by the bride wealth because she couldn't leave the relationship because she didn't have the money to pay back this amount um, of money. On coming to England with him, and he was a doctoral student here, so, you know, if, if people had notions that these things only happen in kind of, you know, uh, less educated, etc. communities, this story actually disrupts that. Um, the violence continued, this type of violence continued, and fearing for her own life and the safety of their children, she escaped. But she was subject to no recourse to public funds. Um, so that's where, you know, it was very difficult for her to leave the relationship because of her immigration status. Um, but I'm pleased to tell you that she did claim asylum on the grounds of gender persecution and was successful. So um, the issue of insecure immigration status and how this intersects with violence is significant in our studies. Um, particularly if somebody is forced into a marriage, leaving that marriage, so exiting the marriage can be very difficult if you're subject to um, very difficult um, immigration controls. Um, and in our studies, if the marriage were to break up before the kind of uh, probationary period, I know it's not supposed to be called probationary period, but in fact operates as such, um, this is a very public humiliation of a failed marriage and could involve the deportation of the woman back to her country of origin. So very, very public. Um, so her experience of violence is mediated by her immigration status, as is her exit out of that um, relationship. And she has to prove that she's the victim of violence, unlike, unlike majority women in order to claim any type of um, assistance for this. So, still keeping with the intersections of uh, violence against women and immigration and asylum, I want to complicate the picture further by bringing in considerations of sexuality. One of our participants, again, was from an African country where she was forced into marriage. Um, she was forced into, the, into marriage when her family found out that she was a lesbian. Um, they were also a poor family and needed the bride wealth that came from the marriage. But the participant described um, sex within that marriage as rape. She managed to escape and came to the UK where she claimed asylum. Her initial asylum claim failed as A, she could not prove she was a lesbian and B, she could not prove that she had been forced into a marriage because of her sexuality. Um, and this is what she says. Even if this country, UK, reject me, I don't know where I will go. It will be my dead body going back to Africa. I have tried to commit suicide twice. I keep a diary in case and leave it where someone can find in case I die. And then later on in the interview she says, I will kill myself before I go back to Africa. 
I'm ready for that. It's really too much. At any time they can call me and say we're going to deport you. I live life by the day. So, um, I'm, again, I'm pleased to tell you that actually her asylum claim did eventually succeed. But the point to which she was driven was that it was better to take her own life than be deported back to her country uh, of origin. So compulsory heterosexuality, which kind of underlies her story, of course, is prevalent in, in, uh, in lots of communities. And um, this is what a couple of the participants said. So the first participant was an interviewee, and um, he was a, a, gay, a gay man. And he had told his parents when he was 18 that he was gay, um, but they just thought that this must just be a kind of phase or he'll grow out of it or whatever. Um, and periodically kept saying, oh, well, you know, perhaps we should find a nice young woman for you to settle down with and so on. And he says, I will take that one step further and say, in what community do we not see the pressure of marriage? Yeah, I would say that we as a society are trained from a very young age to believe that there are particular roles we need to fulfill. And the other aspect of our life is that we want to fulfill those roles. And I think the last part of this sentence is quite important. We want to fulfill our roles. Because he also told us that on a, on a trip um, to India, where he'd gone to see his extended family, they also brought up the issue of marriage, which he managed to kind of evade and avoid. Um, he was at Mumbai airport and struck up conversation with a young woman a young Indian woman, turned out that she was a lesbian. She was coming under the same type of pressure. So they plotted a little plan and thought, well, if we get married to each other and then we can lead our own lives, we can fulfill our roles, we can please our parents, and then we can continue our lives as we want. Perhaps this is the best solution. Well, in the end, they weren't able to do that because um, the person we were interviewing, our participant, said he just didn't feel he could do that. That was so not true to being not... He just didn't feel authentic, didn't feel right for him to do that. But, so that didn't happen. But if you look on the web, you will see quite a lot of um, offers of marriage of this, of this type. So that's interesting. The second quote here is from um, a, white, a white woman, and she, this was in the focus group, and uh, she said, I guess for me I wouldn't necessarily see that as just peculiar to this community. By this community, she was talking about South Asian communities. I think that's happened in white communities and majoritized communities as well. If you get married, then that will iron out all the bumps of your sexuality, so to speak. And frankly, that saying, isn't it, all she needs is a good, then an F word, which I'm not going to repeat here, husband and wedding. So, you know, and I think this notion, I'm, I'm always interested in how things are constructed, you know, um, and, um, well, perhaps we'll talk about that later, but the presentation of forced marriage or compulsory heterosexuality <coughs> only being an issue in minority communities, I think, is problematic. And so we move on very quickly to child marriage. So one of our participants said, a man who's 45 marrying a 16-year-old or 17-year-old is not marrying a wife, he's marrying a slave. Someone he can control, someone he can tell to do what he wants to do when. 
somebody who doesn't know where to find help, someone who's locked in the house as he goes to work. You know, it's just a way of child abuse. So this, this, uh, there, there, there are many more complex issues in relation to child and early marriages, which I don't think we have time to discuss right now, but um, we can talk about that later if you like. Um, immigration was also um, one of the routes into forced marriage because the prospect of a better life in the UK, particularly for extended family members, does feature alongside a sense of duty and obligation to those who are left behind. Um, but what was interesting is that one of the participants um, in our in our study, who had come from abroad, said that there was a serious mismatch between how the UK was portrayed back in, in uh, Pakistan compared to what the reality was. So it was portrayed as, you know, the Dick Whittington thing of streets paved with gold and such like. The reality for her when she came was that she was made to work in her in-laws garment factory seven days a week for no pay. Um, so that was the reality. You know, so it was very different from the image that had been uh, portrayed. Um, I think her case does not fit, you know, the normative understanding of forced marriage. Um, and the, the kind of construction of forced marriage in the UK and in many countries in the, in, in the West is of vulnerable brides. You know, vulnerable brides as ours, i.e. dual nationals or, or nationals and imposed groups, so forced marriage comes from the men who are brought in here, migrant spouses. And if you construct forced marriage like that, then what you're inviting, you're eliciting an immigration um, response um, to the problem. Um, and I think it's also important to note that within that construction that Milbank and Dauvergne uh, mentioned is it kind of doesn't allow for the possibility that women in non-EU countries are being forced to marry people in Britain. It's always assumed that it's the person in Britain is being forced to marry the person outside of Europe. But um, there were many examples in, in, in our study of it happening the other way around um, as well. And then some of the women, as in the stories I've, I've told you, were claiming asylum in the UK on the basis of um, gender persecution. And more recently, there's been an interesting kind of discourse around forced marriage um, and trafficking and notions of illegal immigration. But uh, again, we're not going to talk about those um, in detail, but just to note that trafficking, trafficking discourses themselves are heavily um, contested. So I'd like to move now to consider the potential impact of forced marriage. Um, so, okay, this participant over here says, it's like something comes into you, you don't feel scared of killing yourself, you get so fed up, so much abused, you don't care about anything, how much you're going to hurt yourself. There have been times I would have liked to stab myself, but they had hidden all the knives. I was craving for a knife to put inside me. Just wanted to finish myself, no other way out. I was always thinking about killing myself, feeling I had to. It was like I was in hell. And this was when she was 15, and it was her second forced marriage. So what had happened to her is that she was somebody who was known to social services. 
Um, she was returned to her family when she was 13. I'm not quite sure what the schools were doing over here because she must have been away. Um, you know, so at 13 she was taken to Pakistan and that was the first um, forced marriage. She managed to escape back, came back to the UK, went back to school. There's lots of questions, but obviously I was just talking to her, so I don't quite know what happened from the kind of school end of things. Um, and then at 15 was taken back and forced to marry again. Um, she was very traumatised about it. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of issue of um, attempted suicide and self-harm did also emerge in our later Hester et al. study. And um, Bouya et al. Um, did a review of the literature on rates, risk factors and methods um, in BME communities and he found a link between what he calls arranged marriages and self-harm. So although obviously our studies are small-scale qualitative, this has also been found in, in uh, quantitative studies as well. So I think I should be apparent by now, exiting a forced marriage can be pretty tricky, especially if you're a non-EU national. Um, it also seems, and perhaps understandably, that there is a lot of focus on entry into forced marriage rather than exit points. And I think we, we really do need to consider both. There are enormous barriers to exiting exit <coughs> forced marriage, including um, issues such as no recourse to public funds, financial barriers, fears of deportation, asylum claims and so on. But at a kind of cultural level there's also stigmatisation uh, um, of divorce for women and also gendered surveillance. If there, if there was gendered surveillance pre-marriage this is likely to continue um, post-marriage as well. Um, forced marriages as I <coughs> shown from the, some of the survivor accounts is frequently presented as a case within asylum claims and what I said earlier is that forced marriage is treated differently in different policy arenas and this seems to be a primary example of this. So whilst people are very happy to say it's an abuse of human rights, when it comes to claiming asylum on those grounds, it's very much more difficult. So somehow the human rights element seems to slip out of considerations of asylum um, cases. Um, and the impact, I think, of such contradictions is that victims are often left unprotected. They've, they have escaped, sometimes <coughs> continents, to escape from us. And, you know, it's not treated as an abuse of human rights when they get here. I think that's very problematic. <coughs> Um, for the, I don't know how we're doing for time, okay, for the rest of the presentation this is really about legal and policy measures, so I'm going to suggest that I don't talk about those because I think I've talked enough, but you know, if people want to know, there are things that people can do if you're working in the university um, or elsewhere, but if we just, just to conclude then, I would say that um, focusing on routes into and out of forced marriage I think promises much more than a simplistic culturalist framing. It's not that cultural issues are not important, but they are important in any form of violence against women, whichever community you're talking about, including majority communities. I think we have to be aware of how legitimate concerns of violence against women and forced marriage can firstly be co-opted by the state 
So what I mean by this is, for example, it can result in um, immigration measures, for example, being used as a rationale for preventing forced marriage when it's not really going to help a lot. It certainly won't help with homegrown or European-based um, forced marriages. So it's the way in which these feminist concerns can become co-opted. Um, and secondly, the way in which, as I explained to you from um, Razak's critique of WICAN, how it can be used to reinforce the superiority um, of, of the West. Um, forced marriage treated very differently in different fields of social policy, and that's problematic for the victims. I think the mental health impacts of forced marriage should not be underestimated. And I think there needs to be an increased recognition and intervention in forced marriage at very many different levels, from community levels to university, um, wherever, but cuts to BME women's organisations in the current funding regime are not very helpful. And, well, maybe I would say this as a researcher, but obviously I think there's a need for, for further research into various uh, different areas related to forced marriage. Thanks very much.